0: Someone had said to me a long time ago, well before Rhodes, you should think about your life as in seasons, not so much as you want this next job to have it all, but rather, what is it that you want to accomplish over the course of your life?
1: Today, I'm talking to Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University, and also, amongst many other things, contributing columnist at The Washington Post and CNN medical analyst. Previously, she was Baltimore's health commissioner as well. Lena has just written and published a fantastic book called Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And the book really brings together her story with the story of what she describes as the invisible face of public health. So hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, Lena, welcome to Roads Less
0: Travelled. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to join you. Thank you for starting this podcast
1: thank you for joining us your journey is a truly remarkable one and i can't wait to get stuck into it but i suppose as a preliminary a question that i've been enjoying asking others on the podcast is just somewhat of an icebreaker in something that your family and friends would regard as a particularly you thing to do i think so much of who we are is our everyday selves and reflected in our personal quirks so i wondered what people close to you would describe as something that is a daily leaner thing to do?
0: (laughs) It's a really interesting question. And I was thinking about this. I actually think, One of the things that um, my close friends and family might know about me is that every several years or so, I get really into something new. (laughs) When I was in medical school, I started rollerblading, and that was my thing through medical school. And then when I was at Oxford, I was really into dance sport and ballroom dancing. And in the last year or so, I've just taken up swimming. And so swimming is my... Um, And so, yeah, so I I think that's, you know, if you ask people from different points in my life, they might think that I... I have a hobby that's very different from what others know about me from a different point in life.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. And I, I tell you what, that maybe explains how you've done so many interesting and remarkable things throughout your life too, is kind of the itchy feet and trying new things constantly. That's a good jumping point to To move into also your story and your road and the the first key question for our podcast is really your road to where you are now and how you came to be here. So I've enjoyed recently reading your book Lifelines, which uh, I know started out as a book about public health and making visible the invisible face of public health, but you end up telling the story of public health through your story. And so I thought that's a great place to start is just your beginnings and how you went from uh, being born in China um, and your early days there through to growing up in America to now being on the front lines of public health.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're you're right that when I started writing my my book, Lifelines, I initially was going to write this book about the work that my team and I did in the Baltimore City Health Department and the work that we did on the opioid epidemic or reducing maternal infant mortality or improving senior care and all these public health interventions that we know can make a big difference. But then I started writing about my own story, too, in part because my editor said to me that telling people how important public health is, is like trying to feed people vegetables when they don't want to eat them. I have two little kids and I can really relate to what that what that experience is like. Um, But I started writing my own story because in so many ways, my own story is a story of public health. I was born in China, as you mentioned, Sophie. Um, I came to the U.S. just before I turned eight. My parents and I initially lived in a little town in the mountains of Utah, and then we moved out to Los Angeles. And I, um, despite my parents working multiple jobs, we depended on Medicaid and Children's Health Insurance Program. When my mother was pregnant with my sister, she depended on WIC program. And we had, um, at different points, um, public housing. Uh, I went to public school throughout, including college. And all these things were, um, in a sense, a form of public health because we know that health is not just about health care it's also about education it's also about the housing that you have access to it's also about so many other things in your life i knew for a long time that i wanted to be a physician but i really didn't have a concept of public health until i was in my medical training and again saw for myself how people's health uh, is influenced by so much else. I mean, I remember treating a little child with asthma, for example, who came in all the time with difficulty breathing. But he wasn't in the ER because he needed a better inhaler. He was there because he and his mother were experiencing homelessness and they were going in and out of different shelters that um, where people smoked. And they were living across the street from an incinerator. At some point, they had a row house where the row houses around them, the units around them were vacant and were full of mold. And so helping my patient also meant being attentive to these other conditions in his life and that's what initially drew me to public health. So the work that I'm doing now is I work clinically. Um, I'm trained as an emergency physician. I do urgent care um, now. Um, I also teach the School of Public Health at GW, um, at George Washington University in DC. Um, and I'm doing a lot of work on bringing public health to a broader audience through writing for the Washington Post and working for, for CNN. I would say that you know one of my mentors, um, Uh, Al Somerm, the former dean at, at Johns Hopkins, says that when there's a fork in the road, take it. In terms of the road to where I am now, there's no way that I could possibly have drawn out this path. And I remember actually at Oxford that a lot of us had a lot of anxiety about where we should go next. And I think that advice about taking the fork in the road is the right one, because you never can know exactly where things will lead you. But you should always do something that's impactful right now
1: Mm. oh there's so much to unpack there i i wonder if we could take a few steps back in that um i found very powerful the the very beginning of lifelines where and also well the beginning and end i suppose of lifelines where you talk about beginning with the concept of chiku and ending with congressman elijah cummings quote of the, turn your pain into passion and your passion into purpose. And I wonder whether we could unpack a little bit more the the role that your very beginnings might've played in both, well, I suppose your parents and your grandparents doing what you described as eating bitter um, in order to eat sweet. Um, But then also your own experiences of hardship and, and adversity, I suppose, what role that might have played also to leading you to, to find your vocation in public health.
0: Yeah, I cited my longtime mentor, and the late Congressman Elijah Cummings from Baltimore, many times in the book and talked about the influence that he had in my life, so much so that I named my first child, Eli, after Congressman Cummings. He liked to say, as you stated, that we should be channeling our pain into our passion. And then that passion becomes our purpose. And I think about this a lot because we can't always control what happens to us and the circumstances, the adversity that we are presented with. In fact, we may have very little control over these things that occur, but we do have agency. We do have control over what we do with that experience And so many of the most important things that I've done and the things that I'm the most proud of occurred because of some significant adversity. For example, I started my career in medicine in patient-centered care, which is, again, something that I never would have thought about doing. I started a a center and did research in patient-centered care and and how to make um, patient care more focused on patients and families. But I didn't know that this was at all what I was going to do. What happened was that my mother was misdiagnosed for more than a year before she was finally diagnosed with what turned out to be metastatic breast cancer. And this happened when she was in her 40s. And my little sister was just a child. I was a medical student at the time. Um, I became my mother's caregiver during this period and saw her through eight years of chemotherapy and radiation and surgery. She went into remission and then her cancer recurred. She died when I was a second year medical resident. And so her entire illness coincided with my medical training. And I saw for myself how much there is this disconnect between what patients and family members go through and what our medical system is trying to do. And so I felt compelled to try to bridge that gap. You know, I wanted to bring in here roads as well, because at some point in my career, I also knew that I wanted to do um, work in health policy and public health. But I really didn't know how I was going to pursue that path. And frankly, I had a lot of insecurities associated with this. I mean, I didn't come from a background where my parents knew people, right? I mean, I just didn't have connections through my family. I didn't even know how one would get started on this track when that was not what I was learning in medical school. And the other issue, too, was because I had started my own college so early, And and also, there were many parts of my, my past that I just didn't face. I mean, I grew up, for example, with a severe speech impediment. I was really ashamed of so much of my own identity. And I really didn't have friends. And I mentioned this because... At some point, serendipitously, I read Bill Clinton's autobiography, where specifically talked about his Rhodes experience as the time that he got exposed to all these people, to the world of policy, and also made his best friends in life. And I said, "Oh my goodness, that's what I want!" And so, um, and so I applied for Rhodes, not having known any Rhodes scholars, not having known, you know, really, what this process was going to involve. And you know, again, I think this experience that was so meaningful to me being part of the Rhodes community came to me because of adverse experiences too.
1: Well, you've taken us straight into the important turns and bumps and sliding doors moments part of the the conversation and brought up a couple of things that I I was really eager to hear more about, um, including Rhodes uh, and the the desire to make relationships at Oxford through roads. But then also before that, I was really eager to tease out more the the kind of, the move before and after Oxford into public health. And in in finding a profession that you describe as having an invisible face and very difficult to identify, just how how you enter a profession like that and find a discipline um that is your vocation when it's quite difficult to to see that going in and so i wondered if you could talk us through a little bit more that that move in stepping out from i suppose in some ways the box of medicine into something that is a little bit more uncharted and unclear to see where it might take you in wanting to get into the public health and policy space
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of paths that are more straightforward. For Mm -hmm. example, if I wanted to be an interventional cardiologist, which is something that's very important. So this is not to knock anybody who does anything else. It's just to say that there is a path to doing that. Or if I wanted to become an academic physician and write a lot of papers and have my NIH-funded lab, I mean, it's a very difficult path to go through, no, no doubt. But there is a, a path that's chartered. You know what you need to do to get there. It's much harder, I think, for people who want to do policy um, and in public health work because there's not one path. But I think that actually brings up um, a, a point that I wanted to, to get to in this conversation because someone had said to me a long time ago, well before Rhodes, they gave me this piece of advice that I didn't quite understand at the time. And I actually didn't fully appreciate this until I was through medical residency. I had gone to medical school and then Rhodes and then uh, then residency. And it took me years actually to process this. And what this person said to me was, you should think about your life as in seasons, not so much as you want this next job to have it all, but rather, what is it that you want to accomplish over the course of your life? And will this next job help you in your way there? Or even maybe it's a chunk of what you wanna do, but it's not everything. But then maybe with your next job, you get to do something else. And I actually, over time, this became really comforting to me because otherwise, especially coming out of my residency, I don't, my classmates and I were thinking that our next job had to have it all. Instead, thinking about this, thinking about this as over the course of my life and my career, I want to practice medicine and do some research and do some policy and raise a family. And maybe in the next job that I have, I get to do two out of these five things or one out of these five things. And so um, I ended up my initial um, switch to doing not just clinical medicine was in, as I mentioned, in patient-centered care and in research. And then I had the opportunity to run Baltimore's health department and did that. And so so I think it just was, it nothing was, oh, in five years, I want to have this job, but rather what is it that I'm doing now that can fulfill some element of these, let's say five or 10 things that I want to do over the course of my life.
1: Oh, that's very powerful. Very useful, actually, I think some advice that actually very helpful for me just right now as well. So thank you. I I suppose actually talking about one of those experiences that you brought up just uh, just then in working as the Baltimore City Health Commissioner. You wrote in the book about how initially when you heard about the opportunity, the first thing that came to mind was the, how unqualified you were. And I suppose this comes to mind for me now because my, my question is, how do you recognize those opportunities as they come up and kind of grab them with both hands as the, the opportunity that might take you into ticking one of those various boxes that you wanna tick throughout the, the course of your life? How do you, Uh, How do you see those for the moments that they are?
0: Well, I think it's keeping your eyes open. And frankly, that's something that anyone who is part of the Rhodes community would already be very good at. I think it's also not underestimating yourself. I mean, I will just say from my experience, and I don't mean this to be a particularly gendered conversation, it's just that this is my, this has been my experience that um, the men versus the women that I've worked with have responded very differently when new opportunities have come up. I mean, I write in lifelines too about an experience I had where one of my deputy commissioner positions open up. And I initially approached a woman who had been the assistant commissioner, who had been at the health department for more than 10 years, was really extremely qualified. And I think everybody would have seen her as the next in line. And I said to her, would you consider applying for the deputy commissioner job? Thinking that she would say, of course. But instead, her first reaction was, well, I'm not qualified because here are the 10 qualifications and I only have eight. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, but you know what? Look at that guy over there. He's been at the health department for six months. He just graduated from graduate school. He looked at the same job description and said, here are 10 qualifications. I have three. I am a shoe-in for this job. <laughs> mm. And so it's not, of course, I mean, there are um people who are underrepresented in a lot of other ways who might also feel this way, or people who are not, but who still feel like they have whatever. You know, we I think we all hold our own source of insecurity, our own imposter syndrome. Um, but I think trying for opportunities understanding what's involved and having those qualifications looking out for what's ahead i think is an important part of um of of just going for it
1: this might also be a good time to talk about some of the people who have played an important role in your life in that you, you also talk about multiple times how critical junctures along the way that it's people around you um helping give you the push that you need uh, or hold you back as and when needed. Uh, I, I wondered if you could talk about some of the people who have played particularly prominent roles in that regard. Well, when
0: I was in college, I really had no idea of how I could achieve my dream, which was becoming a doctor. I, again, didn't come from a family where we knew people who were physicians in the US. I, we just, I mean, the only doctor that I ever encountered was my pediatrician because as been growing up. I mean, I really just didn't know how I would get there. And in fact, I was so ashamed even of this dream that I wouldn't tell people that I wanted to be a physician. I thought that people would laugh because they would say, well, who are you to think that, that you could get there when so many other qualified students apply to medical school and don't get in? And I started a work-study program um, and had a wonderful mentor, Dr. Raymond Garcia, who kept on prodding me and saying to me, what is it that you really wanted to do? Because I told him that I wanted to be a lab tech. I mean, I was working a lab. I was studying biochemistry, right? I mean, it was believable that I could become a lab tech. My parents also had a friend whose daughter was a lab tech. I knew that career path. And one day, Dr. Garcia said, but what is it that you really want to do? And I told him, that I wanted to be a physician, but that I had no idea how I could get there. And he said, well, let me introduce you to my previous students who have, um, who have gotten there and who are in medical school and who are in residency. And that made such a big difference to me. And so I think that taught me from an early age the importance of those networks. Um, other people who walked with me, walked with me on this journey, I'm so fortunate to have met my best friends at Oxford. Um, Aaron Mertz was actually my closest friend I met while I was interviewing for Rhodes. He and I were the two people who um, were selected out of our uh, out of our district. Um, and one of my other um, closest friends, Lyric Chen, was a Marshall scholar who was at Oxford during the during the same time. And so um, I think the family you choose um, and I would be remiss to not mention that my, my husband, who I met between my, my first and second year at Oxford. Um, you know, um, these are the, the people, the family we choose are the people who Um, matter a great deal to us as well as of course our actual families.
1: (laughs) Yes yes of course and I I, there was also the the great chapter in Lifelines where where you step through some of the leadership lessons that you've learned I think in particular from your time as the Baltimore uh, Health Commissioner but maybe more generally as well so you talk about Mayor Rawlings Lake, And I found really powerful the the discussion there about the the motto of "Do not let the perfect be the enemy of the good." And then also Congressman Elijah Cummings, who we've already discussed a little bit as well. but in in the importance of celebrating success, I think those two things I found really, really powerful,
0: yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that. i I've mentioned in the book in Lifelines about the lessons that I learned from other people. <laughs> um and um and I take them to heart. I mean, Sometimes in public health, as in so many different fields, it feels like you have to start, you have to do everything because everything's related to each other. And then you often get a sense of decision paralysis because where do you even begin? And something that um, I very much believe in, I mean, I'm an ER doc. And so when a patient comes in and they're very ill, you don't have the ability to say, well everything's wrong with them and so i'm going to let somebody else take care of this problem you say no what is it that i can do right now and i think this is a similar thing that we can do too when i started as the health commissioner in baltimore they were they were and are many different problems but I did a listing tour and looked at what are the issues that our community are identifying as the most as the most significant problems. What do the data show? And also, where can we make a difference, both short term and long term? And so we began to address the opioid epidemic um, and I issued a blanket prescription for naloxone, the opioid antidote to every resident in our city. Everyday residents saved the lives of more than 3000 Uh, family members and friends and community members in a three-year period. I mean, that's a tangible action that makes a big difference, as an example. Or we also started a program to get glasses for every child in the city. Understanding that glasses are not the only thing that will make a big difference when it comes to education and health outcomes. But if kids cannot see, they cannot read. And so if that's something that we can do that's relatively low-hanging fruit that does make a difference, then let's do that now. Um, And so I think those are the types of lessons, being a pragmatic public health practitioner that I wanted to really emphasize in the book.
1: Really powerful. And then I suppose also just carries across just as much from making a difference in the world around you to also just how you carry yourself every day in going back to what we were discussing earlier about the taking opportunities and trying new things as they come up. Uh, being pragmatic and seizing those as and when they come rather than sitting back and waiting for kind of all of all of the things to happen all at once.
0: Right. I mean, I think we don't know what opportunities are going to come our way. And um, one of the things that I get a little bit frustrated about when I'm mentoring um, recent graduates and, and students is they'll say, well, my dream is to do the following. And I fully respect people's dreams and I want them to pursue their dreams. But let's say that they really want to work on HIV AIDS in East Africa. Well, don't wait until you actually have the opportunity to do that. What if you can work on HIV AIDS in your community right now? Mm -hmm. What if you're able to go to East Africa and work on malnutrition? I mean, don't wait for exactly the right thing to land in your lap, especially because when I look back in my career, some of the best experiences I've had were experiences that I would never have anticipated to be exactly like that. It was because I took those opportunities to work with somebody who I really respected or to do a project that I thought would make a difference right now. Those were the things that I look back at as having made the biggest difference to me in my career, as well as to the people that I was serving.
1: Okay. I'm going to move us now into rapid fire questions because I have a few of them that I'd like to ask you. And so they may not be as rapid as I would like to think. The, the first question I want to put to you is something interesting you've learned in the past year about yourself or more generally.
0: I don't know if it's something that I've learned about myself more recently, but um, I, I will say that having children totally changed my perspective. In looking back, um, I, I made a lot of decisions as a leader that did not take into account the needs of people with young kids or with, with other caregiving needs. And so I think, I mean, ha- having children certainly changed my, my perspective and that I look at everything from the lens of being a mom. Mm. Um, I, I think about the cases that I'm, I'm reviewing, for example, in child fatality review or an overdose review from the perspective of being a mom in a way that I didn't anticipate before. But I think it's also changed my perspective on how to structure time, not just for myself, but for the people that I'm working with too.
1: No, that's very interesting and probably could lead us down a whole other line of conversation (laughs) and questions. Uh, Next question for you, though. What does standing up for the world mean to you? Yeah, so I first wanted to say
0: I actually wasn't sure where this came from, um, but I really liked what we had in Rhodes before about fighting the world's fight. I mean, I think whether it's fighting the world's fight or standing up for the world, to me, it means doing what you can right now. With the vantage point that you have, as in, I think sometimes within the Rhodes community, there is some judgment that we impose on others about other people's career choices. And I just don't know that I find that particularly helpful because Mm -hmm. perhaps somebody is working in a career that you don't want to be working in. But that person, even if they're not able to stand up for the world in their job, maybe they are on several nonprofit boards. Maybe they are really committed to their children and their family and caregiving and those responsibilities right now. Um, Maybe somebody else has a traditional career that's more about standing up for the world or fighting the world's fight. But I don't know that. We should be judging individuals for the choices that they made at this point in their lives it could also be a seasons thing maybe right now they're not really working on fighting the world's fight because they have so much they have something else going on in their lives but i think we should look at this as the totality of that person's experience
1: and each of us doing what we can that also reminds me of a powerful quote someone shared with me in high school of the if you change the world of one person, you're changing the entire world for that person. And I think it sometimes brings into perspective what changing the world can look like and mean and standing up for the world in that respect as well. Um, I really appreciate that. Okay, changing tact a little bit, the last TV show or book that you just couldn't stop watching or put down, Right, so my <laughs> husband and I
0: are are binge watching *Fauda*, the Israeli series that's oh. on Netflix right now.
1: <laughs> oh, I will have to check it out. Uh, one person you'd like to have a meal with, alive or dead? Oh, I um,
0: talked about Elijah Cummings earlier, and I know that um, maybe this is the opportunity to name people who I otherwise have not met. But I just I miss my mentors very much. And actually, three of the mentors that I talk about a lot in the book, Dr. Raymond Garcia, Congressman Elijah Cummings, and also Dr. Fitzhugh Mullen, they are people who have been instrumental in my career, and my life, in every way. I miss them dearly, and I would do anything to have a meal mm-hmm. with them again.
1: Oh, that's beautiful. And one final question for you, Lena, is the best or most useful advice that you've received that you you just need to pay forward. <laughs>
0: I somebody else said this to me a long time ago, and again, it's taken me some time to absorb and internalize and apply my life. But I think this is particularly useful, which is that when you look for a job, I think a lot of us first look at the mission of the organization, then at what we will do day to day. And then we look at who are the people that we're going to be work with. We should flip that hmm. and instead look at who you're going to be working with and then what you do and then ultimately the mission. And what I mean by that is for example I mentioned Dr. Fitzsimolan. I followed him in my career. I followed him after residency. I followed him through medical school. I, I, knowing the type of person that he was, there was no way that he was going to go work for Philip Morris or you know or something like that, right? I mean it almost didn't matter what organization he went to work for, because it will always be something whose mission I really believed in. And it was never going to be um, work that I didn't want to do because it, it didn't really matter if what we were doing was medical education in Southern Africa or um, or medical education in California or teaching health equity or doing HIV AIDS work. I mean, no matter what it was, it was going to be something impactful because I really believed in him. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that I wish I had really... Um, come to terms with earlier, but it's certainly what I'm uh, put to use now in thinking about the opportunities that I'll be taking, which is the people, and then the and then the specific day to day, and then the mission of the organization.
1: Mm, that's something that's come out in a couple of other conversations that we've had on the podcast too. Very powerful. Start with the people. Well, Lena, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And my recommendation for everyone listening would be to just pick up a copy of Lifelines. I'm not a physician. I don't have a background in medicine, but I just couldn't put Lifelines down, which I think is an inability to put down the story of your life and your vocation, Lena. So thank you for sharing that with the world and for sharing it with us today on the podcast as well.
0: I really appreciate this, Sophie. Thank you so much for your work, for highlighting the stories for so many of us in the Rhodes community. And thank you for helping to build the Rhodes community as well.
1: Thanks, Lena.